all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Within 40 days, they're in tissues and completely unresponsive to antibiotic treatment at that point. So you've got that little tiny window. And this test, the two-tier test, the likelihood that you will get a positive result for that test and get treated early is extremely poor. Join us almost every Thursday on iTunes, Alexa, or your favorite podcast app for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I am the producer and brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora, and today is episode number 263 with tick-borne disease research Dr. Holly A. Hearn. And in this episode, you're going to learn three things, the dangers of using doxycycline as an antibiotic, the time limit before Lyme disease becomes chronic, and the best tests for diagnosing different tick-borne infections. For all our regular listeners, you will notice that McKay is not here today. He is actually on his way to a conference down in Florida. Lucky for him because it is currently snowing up here in central New York. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join in from all over the world. And this week's top 10 cities are starting at number 10, Vienna, Austria, number 9, Akron, Ohio, number 8, Waterville, New York, howdy neighbors, number 7, San Francisco, California, number 6, Woburn, Massachusetts, number 5, Rochester, New York, number 4, Ashburn, Virginia, number 3, Melbourne, Australia, number 2, Hamden, Connecticut, and number 1, Paris, France. Now, before we get to the interview, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Holly Ahern. Holly Ahern is an associate professor of microbiology at SUNY Adirondack who runs an undergraduate research lab. When Dr. Ahern found out several years ago that her daughter's mysterious illness was Lyme disease, she quickly immersed herself in the subject. Dr. Ahern has become an advocate for developing a broader understanding of Lyme disease, one aimed at treating the chronic symptoms commonly reported by patients who are misdiagnosed or received an inadequate treatment in the disease's early stages. And now, here is Dr. Ahern. So let's let's jump right in. I am very, very, very excited to talk to you because the last time we bumped into each other, I think that was up in Maine. Is that correct? Is it that long ago? Um, didn't I see you at Lime Mind or am I no, dreaming no, no. that? We were at Lime Mind. That's right. Yeah, but we, we only were able to talk very briefly. Yep. And what I recall from our last conversations is that you're very interested in the status of testing about Lyme disease and the other yeah. critters that come along with it and around it. And I would love for this to be an in-depth, almost tutorial for people just to get a good solid foundation. I mean, you're, you're, you're the triple threat in the Lyme world. You're a rock star. So. <laughs> I wish you, no, you really are. You, there's, there's no doubt about it. You know, there are other people in individual niches that 
may have more knowledge, but your breadth of knowledge and your personal involvement with Lyme disease and on the policy side too is just there's nobody like you out there. There really isn't. It's so you're you're a treasure, and I I treasure you. Well, thank you. Okay, I appreciate that. So every once in a while, I get to the point where, all right, I've done what I can, and you know the ball is rolling. So hopefully, it'll roll all the way. <laughs> The rest of the way, you know, I think we're almost at the top of the hill and, you know, it's, it has to come down the other side. It's really medicine at this point that needs to catch up. Um, you know, I really believe there's enough science there. It's just that, that, you know, people get stuck on the issues of antibiotics, of whether or not to use antibiotics, whether or not long-term antibiotics are effective. And, you know, they are and they aren't. They work for some and they don't for others. And, what we need to do is investigate for those that it doesn't work for instead of assuming it's a one-size-fits-all cure, you know. And um, so hopefully, I, I really feel that once people, once it's more clear who has the disease and who doesn't, you know, the all this will open up a little bit broader. I hope. I mean, that is my sincere hope. Plus one over here. I was just listening to a podcast of Peter Atiyah podcast the drive are you familiar with that at all no not that one no anyway so he was talking with uh basically a weight loss specialist uh about weight loss and they were getting into you know what's the best diet blah 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 and they started talking about phenotypes right in terms of different kind of how people react to different weight loss programs and uh, calorie restriction and carbohydrate restriction or fat restriction, you know, and what way to go. And they're in the same boat in, in that they feel there is no one size fits all. You know, there, there may be a, a best strategy out there, but there definitely isn't the strategy out there. And so I, th I think that's just an Achilles heel of the medical system in general. And so we're not the only ones struggling with that. I agree. I agree. So let's talk about, let's just briefly, most people have heard very many statistics about the current two-step CDC tracking surveillance criteria for testing and the ELISA and the, the standard Western blot. And will you give me kind of an overview? What, what do you think the statistics are on sensitivity and then... Uh, just a you know, just a nutshell of what that test was designed to do and what its shortcomings are. So, how much time do you have? <laughs> just a nutshell, because we're going to move on to what works. We we okay. I mean, basically, everybody got the message: the testing isn't great. But let's just put a little bit of you know statistics on that. Like, what's really going on there? Okay, so with the two tier testing, the two tier means there are two two levels of tests. So the first test is called an ELISA, and that measures um, a whole broad range of antibodies produced um, that in response to the whole cell. I mean, it's called a, the, the trigger is a whole cell. So antibodies are produced against a multitude of things that are on the surface of those bacteria um, by us. And so then the test actually says, are there those antibodies present at what level? So that test is sort of more of a broad spectrum screening type of test. And what I can tell you from the research, the published research on the sensitivity of that test, and sensitivity, by the way, 
refers to um, you know the rate of positive results, right? So in other words, if somebody actually has the disease, what is how accurate is that test at detecting it? So the sensitivity for that test is is the ELISA is less than fifty percent. Um, it's actually the research says it's in the range of forty two to forty seven percent. So that means it will for every one, ten people that actually have Lyme disease, less than five of those people will be detected as having Lyme disease using that test. So that is the screening test. That is the test you have to pass in order to even get the second tier Western blot. The Western blot was used, I mean, the reason why they decided to go with the second tier test was because of the lack of specificity, which is the other standard that uh, laboratory tests are measured by. Specificity is, you know, how likely is it if you have a positive test, is it actually that thing as opposed to something else? So the specificity with the Western blot is higher. So they can discriminate who is actually, you know, who has Lyme disease away from who has Epstein-Barr, who has uh, flu, who has this, who has that, using the Western blot. Um, so that now instead of looking for just general antigens, they're looking for specific antigens, 10 of them, in fact. So with that, the second test increases specificity, but it does not increase sensitivity at all because the first tier is the tier the test you have to pass before you even get that more specific test. So where this came from back in 1994 when it was devised was from the two-tier system that they had devised for HIV, for AIDS, for people who have AIDS. So it worked great for HIV. It does not work great for Lyme. It never did, and then actually they knew that people uh, produced an immune response that was slow and heterogeneous, meaning you know they not everybody produces the same antibodies, not everybody produces any any antibodies against this particular bacteria, because the bacteria tells the immune system to not do that. So something like 30% never produce the antibodies that are measured in those tests. Another 50% produce such low levels that they're not, they never reach the level of detection um, for that test. And so, you know, just as an aside, what is being done to address that is using more sensitive detection methods. So it's not actually improving um, the what the test is looking for, you know, in terms of that much, but it is saying, well, we can at least detect a lower level of those antibodies so that we can, you know, hopefully increase the rate of positive results if they're actually there. But there is, you know, so basically the limitation of that test is that half of people who do have the disease will be given a false negative test result. And unfortunately, the emphasis has always been on specificity, meaning, God forbid, if you are the, you know, one in 100 individual who gets a false positive result, so you have Epstein-Barr instead of Lyme, and you're given an antibiotic, oh my God, now you've given this, been given this antibiotic, and of course antibiotics are, are horrible and dangerous and you know, you're gonna die from getting that treatment, not, okay? You will not get that, that will not happen. So they've, they've overemphasized specificity at the expense of sensitivity. So the bigger problem here are those false negative test results, not the one false positive, 
not the one out of 100 that will get a false positive, the 50 out of 100 who will get a false negative result. They will not get diagnosed. They will not get early diagnosed and therefore not treated within that window of time before the bacteria disseminate and establish permanent colonies and tissues, which is what they do, and just start their, you know, that low level of inflammation. That is what those bacteria do. And I'm, I'm saying that from the perspective of the microbiology research, um, not the clinical aspects of it, but this is what we know from the microbiology of the disease, uh, the, the microbiology of the pathogenesis of the disease. So the bacteria enter your body within 40 days, they're established in tissues. Um, they drive the, the persistence of them, the, the level of um, markers, but they have antigens in their cell walls. And uh, it was recently published that peptidoglycan, which is part of bacterial cell walls, is, the, is a trigger for that inflammation. So that the, the really is the match that drives inflammation. And unless you catch it early with antibiotics, and by early, what the research in animals shows is that within 40 days, they're in tissues and completely unresponsive to antibiotic treatment at that point. So you've got that little tiny window. And this test, the two-tier test, the likelihood that you will get a positive result for that test and get treated early is extremely poor. And that is the problem, the big problem with that test, because you can't use it for early diagnosis. And early diagnosis is the key to preventing long-term persistent symptoms of the disease. Now, I'm risking going out or down a rabbit hole here, but I, I have to know this answer if you if you have the answer you mentioned that the borrelia tells the immune system not to respond not to produce antibodies so does it have its own version of t regulation enzymes or is it stimulating the body the body's own t reg cells to just say no there's nothing to see here just move along so that's not down a rabbit hole because the research um, that's being done on non-human primates that has been done on mice and even older research done before 1990 shows exactly that, that the, the helper T cells are being told to just nothing to see here, you know, or it's basically the B cells, the plasma blasts, the cells that are activated uh, to produce antibodies and they're supposed to be producing specific antibodies are getting screwed up instructions from the T cells uh, because that's the cell type that is being dysregulated by Borrelia. So the research I'm talking about, of course, comes from um, Nicole Baumgart's lab at University of California, uh, at Monica Amber's lab at Tulane University, which that's going to be published very shortly, uh, those kinds of confirmatory tests. And as I said, there's a body of research before 1990 that shows this exact issue occurring in humans. Um, a lack of helper T cell proliferation, which means the B cells are not being told the right thing. So what the B cells are doing, they're giving it a shot. Um, they're producing, you know, antibodies, just like hoping, you know, so I know we, we're supposed to be doing something. We don't know what it is. So we'll just produce these random antibodies. But of course, that's not what the tests are measuring. So that is what the science is showing, McKay, that the, uh, it, it is, in fact, an issue with the immune system that is initiated by the infection, and this is something that needs to be addressed. So before we start looking at diagnostic tests that measure more antibodies, 
um, or different antibodies, the limitation of the fact that people are not producing the same sets of antibodies and uh, the antibodies might be of low quality, low levels, should be investigated further. And the good news is, thanks to the private philanthropics um, funding this research, it is finally being done. The research that they just sort of put aside in the 1990s is now, you know, coming to the forefront. And so we're going to have a much clearer picture of what this disease actually is. That's very exciting news. And just mm -hmm. to, I want to highlight, so so what this means, so normally what happens, the body has two phases to grossly simplify the immune system, which is maybe the most complicated thing on the planet, system on the planet, the, the innate immune system. So that's the initial response from macrophages and lymphocytes, and it, it detects some sort of disturbance in the force, let's say, and it goes after it. And it's it's very nonspecific and it can damage our own tissue, but it's it's pretty powerful. And what happens is as the body begins to recognize there's this whole system where the body samples uh, proteins and then sends it on up through the lymph into these differentiations and then the adaptive immune system. And those are like the, I don't know, they're the snipers. They're the, they really have clear instructions who they're looking for. They're just not indiscriminate and just clearing out anything in the region. And if, right. if the antibody system, if the uh, adaptive immune system isn't getting going, then the body's left with the innate immune system the whole time. And is this, so this must be, the chronic inflammation that we're seeing all the time, that it just never resolves because it can't. Yeah, so it's very, it's really, this is an amazing bacteria. So what this bacteria wants to do is to survive and persist. It's not about growing to huge numbers and making you throw up or have diarrhea to spread. It's about, I'm going to find a nice place and I'm going to live there. But to do that in the human the bacteria has to convince the immune system that, like you said, nothing to see here, all's well, just leave me alone. So that early, what the overall response is, so, you know, the response to a typical virus or bacterial pathogen is an all out, you know, get rid of this thing. The response, when you look at the subsets of cells, I mean, this is getting way too deep into immunology, but when you look at the cells that are activated and the antibodies that are produced, the response is more on the side of a TH2 yeah. as opposed to going first and then calming down. It just is like low level and more like a response to an allergen. So when people have symptoms that when you listen to them, it sounds like they, you know, the, that low level of, you know, feeling yucky and fatigued and all that. Um, it is because the, the overall body response is more as it would be to an alert allergen, like not an all out threat to life and limb, but more of a low level inflammation, you know, keep it under the radar, just will kind of stay there. But as you know, once inflammation starts, it becomes a self feeding problem. Um, because there's a positive feedback inflammation calls up more cells to the area, which produces more inflammation, which calls up more cells, which produces more inflammation. So the inflammation escalates and can get out of control. And the thing is, we don't know what the difference is between people where that inflammation gets out of control and people who are able to keep it under control. And I think that is the difference that we should be paying more attention to. So, you know, after a while, like I said, Borrelia is the match, like the match, but the, the forest fire, the real crisis here is the inflammation. 
And so that opens the door to the idea that perhaps immunotherapies or, you know, I, those straight out immune suppression probably causes symptom relief for a while, but that's not the solution to this. Um, and the good news is, you know, the people at Duke, uh, Neil Spector, Tim Hayward, the, the ones who are working on that from the perspective of how to turn that off, right, and kind of like an immunotherapy, that's where the success is going to lie when it comes to the treatment. So all of this research, this immune system is slowly making its way to the top. I would say last year, there were a record number of publications on this. And again, uh, you know, I went back to look to the, the primary literature, and I found a whole body of this where a lot of this was laid out. In other words, this line of research had started, but by 1994, it had stopped. And that's because at that point, it was decided that this was a disease, you know, a typical bacterial infection. There was no big deal. We didn't need to have any profound measures. They were, you know, even as early as that is, and that line of research just went away. And those, many of them got out of the field. And so the good news is it's still there. I mean, it's not like, it's not there to go back to refer to and, and go back and repeat some of those studies with using better equipment, by the way. I mean, we now have very powerful technology that would allow us to look at those issues. It all comes down to funding. So as usual. As, as always, right. <laughs> yes. I was following one researcher. She had published a, a couple of papers on the TH1, TH2 differentiation and kind of the timing of that. And then all of a sudden her publishing stopped. And so I tried to find her, you know, I'm, I'm Googling this, this researcher, this PhD, and she left research. She's in some government, uh, entity in the Midwest now and, and not doing it. And it's just like you said, the, the whole trace went cold, the whole Lyme for whatever reason, just in the nineties, just stopped dead cold. All right. So I want to, let's, let's come back out the rabbit hole. So it was, maybe that was not a rabbit hole. Maybe it was just a little mouse hole. And That's it. <laughs> so what I find in my practice is some practitioners, some physicians out there are just going straight to the Western blot to kind of bypass the ELISA problem. But that's not a complete solution either. And can you help us understand why that's not perfect either? Because the sensitivity of the Western blot is still the same. It's the specificity that's increased with the Western blot. So you're still going to have the same level of false negatives, but you're going to have a higher specificity. So in other words, if you get a positive, it's a pot, you know, you're more likely that that actually is Lyme disease. But if you get, if it doesn't meet the standard, don't forget that test is interpreted subjectively. Um, so in other words, if you get four out of five bands on an IgG, it's negative. If you get five out of five, it's positive. Really? <laughs> So that that's the problem. You're not improving the rate of false negatives. You will improve, you decrease the rate of false positives, but not the rate of false negatives. And again, early diagnosis is key to preventing dissemination of the bacteria into in places that, and I, I, I don't know that I mentioned this, but once they are established in tissues, they are antibiotic tolerant. So antibiotic will no longer treat those infections. And that's why, you know, that this issues with long-term antibiotics, whether to use them or not, I, I think it's just an area of contention where there are two camps so far apart when the reality is kind of in the middle. I think that 
antibiotics should be used judiciously in case when flares happen, people should be put back on those antibiotics. But really, the bacteria are tolerant. So it doesn't matter. The idea is just, you know, turn down the problem for a while. But if it comes back, then, you know, it, retreatment would be necessary. And that's all lost in the argument of, you know, the, the argument over long-term antibiotics do work versus long-term antibiotics don't work. And unfortunately, that's a fight between infectious disease medicine and everybody else on earth because they are the keepers of the antibiotics. Yes. And we won't. Early diagnosis is the key it, it is. here. This is what we should be focusing on. And we need a diagnostic test that will enable that. And that's what the research is headed for, I hope. I mean, I truly believe that it is so. Now, so let's just wrap up the Western blot in a nice little bow. So you're saying that the Western blot is also about uh, 50% sensitive. Yeah. Sensitivity. Right. So if you've got 50% going into the ELISA and then 50% sensitive on the Western blot, you could be missing a lot more if you do the math. Right. right? So that's okay. So that's there are other tests out there, and some of them are just other Western blots. Some of them are more trying to track down the, the RNA of the bugs, uh, the PCR type tests. So what do you think? is effective out there and it's okay with me if you name labs uh or you don't have to i don't i'm agnostic on that i'd love for you to be able to do that but if you don't feel comfortable that's also i want to give you an out there like what so where where should a person let's say we have unlimited funds we just got we just won the lottery so money isn't an issue what tests and where should we get them well i'm going to start with hygienix lab um not, I'm not endorsing them. I'm just saying the reason why they're, they do the Western blot, they do ELISA, they do the standard two-tier testing. But what makes their test different is that they use, they interpret the test so that the two antibody bands that the CDC has removed from the test, which happen to be the two most specific, um, you know, protein antibodies that there are, the CDC does not include those. IHNX does. And so you hear this, oh, well, they everybody trusts positive for it. It's like, no, because they include those two bands. And I also want to add, McKay, with that lab, something that really annoys me greatly is when I hear anybody say, well, my doctor says that lab is a fake lab that they, um, you know, they, they give bad results and all this. It, it, so in New York State, New York State has the Clinical Laboratory Evaluation Program, or CLEP. So to, op, to be able for a physician to order a test, that test has to be licensed through CLEP. So there is a whole certification process that, that you have to go through. This is only New York State, by the way, okay? So other, there's federal agencies that are in charge of this CLIA, right? You might've heard that, Clinical Laboratory Improvement Act and others. So in other words, the US government is on this, but New York State has a special standard that labs have to, you know, it's a hoop that labs have to jump through if they wanna offer their tests in our state. So what I want to say about Igenix is that Western blot, their ELISA, is CLEP licensed in New York State. So if anybody has issues with the rate of positive or negative test results, they need to talk to the New York State Department of Health about that because they certify that test meets their standards. So I, you know, I it just really annoys me when people say, well, nobody would take my Igenix results because uh, they. You know, they say it, the lab is that that is not correct. 
And I try to make that point to everyone um, just that they can tell their physicians, they look it up. Here's the CLEP license. Here's the, you know, how do you dispute that? <laughs> not that they won't, but not, how do you do that? So that right, you is, move on to the next red herring. <laughs> yes, yes. So that would be if, you know, as far as the highest standard for the two-tier serology, I would say that would be, that is certainly a place to go. And by the way, insurance does cover that. You, you're, it's just not something that, you know, in other words, you have to be reimbursed for it. You pay for it, but your insurance does reimburse for that test. So that's all stuff that doesn't seem to be out there in the general um, medical realm. Okay, so let's let's pause there for a second. So we're just talking about Igenix two tier Eliza Western blot. They've added in two extra bands, so they're looking at twelve antigens instead of ten, and these are more specific for Lyme. So it's a it's a more sensitive test because it's picking up these other two two yes, bands it, here. And right, but when you look on their menu, they have about it looks like a hundred different tests for for Lyme disease. And they get right, and not all things. of those. So they're not all past the New York State. That is correct. Okay. So what else is past New York State is their test for tick-borne relapsing fever, which is a, uh, another tick-borne relapsing fever is Borrelia myomatoi, which is um, it's we're realizing that that's here. It's been here, and a lot of people, um, may, more people might have it than um, was previously thought. But there hasn't been a good test for that because Borrelia myomatoi does not get picked up by the two-tier serology. So now Igenix also has a test for TBRF, which I think is a, you know, an additive. That, you know, that test should be done at the same time that Lyme is done um, for that very reason. Because the ticks are positive for Borrelia myomatoi in New York State. Um, I don't know about other states, but in New York State, I do know that. So therefore, guess what? You know, what looks like Lyme disease might be Borrelia myomatoi disease. But guess what? The test won't pick that up. And so, again, that person gets not diagnosed, goes down the rabbit hole of late diagnosis equals bacteria disseminating equals um, chronic inflammation uh, without, right, if you don't get that early treatment. So that is, you know, just another aspect of that. And then you, you'd asked about other types of tests. I really think the need is for a direct diagnostic test. Um, the problem is the bacteria, the, the blood, the sample of choice, which would be the easiest to get, is of course a blood sample, right? Everybody knows that every once in a while you got to roll up your sleeve and have a needle stuck in your arm and have blood taken for blood tests. Um, so, but the issue is the bacteria do not, so the spirochetes themselves are not in the blood for very long because the temperature of our blood is actually not conducive to their growth. So their goal is to get out of the blood and into tissues as quick as they can. So that's why PCR is effective early in the disease, which is kind of interesting because as an early test, PCR has similar sensitivity to ELISA. So why wouldn't you do PCR? Um, for those for diagnosis of those early cases, um, but not everybody's gonna. They're not gonna pick it up because again, you you draw you know five milliliters of blood. If the bacteria aren't in those in that five milliliter, you're not gonna pick up the reaction. Uh, so there are other tests like T cell proliferation assays, which I think the name of that test is an Eli spot. 
those tests again before 1995 there are there were publications saying this is this is a good way to go because the T cells you know looking at T cell activation T cells get activated before Brilliant tells them you know fine be activated just don't tell the B cells what to do so that that's very interesting because that those tests are available um, I, I actually don't know which labs do that here in the United States. I know that the, in Europe, that's a test that's more widely performed. Um, you know, there, there's the urine capture, which is to detect um, it, it. So a, a urine sample is used, which is another body fluid that's not that difficult to collect, um, which captures antigens from Borrelia. So in other words, the bacteria in your blood, get all that gets processed. And of course, everything in your body goes out through your kidneys, not everything, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and they can detect the OSPA antigen in urine. And that was, um, you know, the Sierra's lab was doing that for a time. And now they, they've moved into the research realm and kind of out of the clinical aspects of that. And they're trying to license the test to other places. That appears to be about as sensitive as PCR. So once again, Sensitive meaning, you know, we have not really gotten above that 50-50 mark yeah. for any of these, yeah. right? The one study that was done where all of these things were looked at in a comprehensive way, in fact, the title of the article was, you know, a two-year review of, of uh, a two-year study of all of the different tests. What they found was that you could get the sensitivity up to like 70% if you did three things at the same time. So if you did the ELISA, with a PCR and culture, if you did all three of those, the sensitivity was up to 70%. And this is all serum? Blood? Blood, right. Okay. Now, so, but the point being, how realistic is that right. in a clinical setting, which you know, right? So how realistic is somebody going to order all three of those tests? And more importantly, how realistic is it that the insurance company is going to pay for all three of those tests because they will say, this is redundant. There's no need for three tests to diagnose one disease. So therefore, we're not going to pay for that, which means the patients have to pay or not. And any and then it's still 70 percent. So three out of 10 are still going to be, um, you know, 30 percent will go on to develop long term illness. So and we're still talking about this 40 day window, correct? Yes. See, that's, yes. That's the that's just the absolute brutal part of this. It's. Right. It's actually amazing anybody tests positive. <laughs> it, it, well, you know, a lot of people don't at first. I know, and I know. That's the problem. And then they develop chronic disease symptoms and nobody thinks to test. Yeah, so until... Let's talk about that because antibodies aren't produced in the first hour you're infected. They can take, what is it, four, seven days or even longer to get enough quantity to be, uh, to be picked up. So what's, what's the timeline on that? Well, and that's unknown because in the studies on animals, non-human primates and in mice, the response is, and the exact wording is slow and heterogeneous. Slow meaning, and this is something that's been noted. I mean, yeah. it's not like this is any new, uh, new news, you know, even in humans, the response is slow. So that's why the medical recommendation is to redo the test. If, you know, if somebody shows up, no bullseye rash, they've got all the symptoms, blood test was negative, you're supposed to redo the test in four weeks. Why? And the answer is because they've realized forever that the response is slow and the level doesn't reach detectable. 
during those first four to six weeks. So that was in the tick-borne disease working group report. I mean, so this is not new knowledge. So, but the point being, it's slow. It's heterogeneous, meaning not everybody produces the same antibodies that are measured in those tests. And 10 to 30% don't produce antibodies at all. So that is the reality. There are some people who are, have, you know, however the bacteria what they are doing in the lymph nodes by changing the architecture of the germinal centers of the lymph nodes, that is where that's a variable, what the outcome of that is going to be variable, depending on what cell types are affected, what, you know, how complicated, as you mentioned, all that was going to be. So the response, you know, when you have a one size fits all test interpreted in a one size fits all way for an infection where it is anything but one size fits all. It's highly variable across the board. And that's every animal model and humans that have been noted. You, it, That's where this, this whole system fails. So we have to move away from testing for specific antibodies. I mean, testing for immune system activation, because they do that, there's a robust activation. It's just, you know, no, we're not measuring the ro- robust part of it. We're measuring the like crazy B cells trying to do what they think is best without anybody telling them. It's like a bunch of kindergartners here, go out and solve this problem um, without being told exactly how to do it. That's, that's how I would characterize the immune response to Borrelia infection. It's not exactly organized, not well organized. You know, I just had, so my, my story is I got bit unknowingly. I didn't know. I never saw the tick, but bullseye rash came up very quickly. Uh, within, let's see, like three or four days and went to the emergency room and got my antibiotics right away. It's like, a this is how it should be done. I was very, very, very lucky. And of course, the test comes back negative, right? Even though the, the, the bullseye, it's very clearly that it's Lyme disease. There's no other disease that, that produces that rash. And I just had a patient and she, she kind of comes in. She's actually being <laughs> being treated by... Uh, other Lyme specialists, but she comes in with me to touch base when she's got questions, which is really kind of funny. And just, so she comes back uh, about two years after her initial infection, and she's starting to feel bad again. And she's saying, you know, could this be Lyme disease? And she actually, she, she's got a, uh, she's very lucky. She has a concierge doctor and the doctor's a little more flexible and open-minded because it's is a pay for pay. So she has, this doctor has to keep the, the patient's happy. So they redid the Lyme test, the standard Western blot. They just went to the Western blot and only two bands were positive. So the doctor's not an expert, but at least he's open-minded and it started all on doxycycline again. And so th- this woman's coming back to me and said, you know, sh- should I be concerned? You know, what do you think's going on? And for my mind, you know, it's, it's super clear. It's like you have a Lyme flare. There's no doubt about it, you know? And so what she ended up doing last time was, uh, using a, an essential oil protocol. And I encourage you, like, you know, don't wait to start, you know, to finish the doxies, like just go right ahead on that. And you want to think about more long-term treatment because clearly it wasn't cleared out the first time. And just what you've laid out so beautifully is those spirochetes are hiding, whether it's in tissue or behind a biofilm or behind a biofilm within the tissue. And uh, they, they took advantage of uh, her, her getting sick with something else and came out. 
Yep, that's exactly what happens. It's such, I mean, we've heard that story how many times? Everybody has that story. Everybody. I've got that story. And you know, here's here's the really interesting part, uh, you know, interesting from a scientific area, but so the research being done at Johns Hopkins University, uh, Dr. Zhang's lab there, he's a microbiologist, he's doing test tube research, but what his his culture studies are showing, which uh, again, these studies were never done when they should have been done, you know, 30, 40 years ago, they were never done, um, is that doxycycline, the the frontline drug for uh, all of these, right, all stages of Lyme, doxycycline is a frontline drug unless the patient has a, can't do it, is the one drug that pushes, that triggers the bacteria to go into the persister form. So doxy has the highest rate after the persister cells form. It has the highest rate of viable cells recovered after the fact. So in other words, something like 83% of persisters are still there after doxycycline treatment. So of the three frontline drugs, so there's doxy, there's the cephalosporin antibiotics, and then there's a you know penicillin type drugs. Doxy is the worst. And yet that is still the frontline drug. And it will be until whenever. And I'll, I'll yeah. say something else. The research that decided that doxycycline was a drug that was actually done on tetracycline, by the way, was done in the 1980s. So this treatment regimen is based on research from the 1980s that was never really repeated in patients. It's just become cemented into whatever it is that cements these things into medical practice. That is one of those cemented things. Paving the cow paths. That's it. Now, so that's, that's a, I think a few years ago in interviewing Dr. Shoppy, she was saying that when the Borrelias threatened somewhere between seven and 8% of them uh, form cysts, is that still uh, what's known or do we have other numbers on how many will go into the cyst form when it's challenged? So. I think that's the round bodies. The round bodies are the persisters. Um, So, because there's, there's, that's the other part of this. There's um, broad use of terminology. So it's kind of sometimes a little difficult to. Yes, I'm using the (laughs) non-scientific. Okay. So the, uh, you know, uh, that seven to 8% um, comes from published studies on other bacteria where it's about 10% go into this persister form. It's higher than that in Borrelia. And the reason why is because they have to live in ticks. They live in mice. They live in humans. They, I mean, all warm-blooded animals, but we're not all created equal. The temperature in ticks is much lower. That's actually, um, you know, more of a permissive temperature for them to grow. When they get into blood at 37 degrees, you know, the higher temperatures and all the inhibitory factors, you know, they're triggered pretty fast to go into that persister mode. That's why they get out of blood as quickly as they can because it is harmful to them. It's, it's, uh, that's not a happy place for them. It's right. So it, I, I, I think that's probably a, there's a higher rate of uh, the bacteria going in for sisters with Borrelia than for other other types of infections, so what, which, by the way, most bacteria do that. It's This is not weird science. This is most bacteria have some ability to do that. So what's the difference between round body and cyst? Well, you know, so I'm a microbiologist, and I'm not 100% sure um, if there is a difference. Okay. The round body, the, the cyst is the resistant form. 
persister cell refers to the persistent form. So that would kind of fall into the category of cyst. But the terminology that other labs tend to use is round bodies because that's what you see them do when you watch them. They the, the long skinny bodies kind of roll up into balls and they become round bodies. So the point being, regardless of what term you use, they are antibiotic tolerant at that point. At that stage, they are not metabolically active. The antibiotics don't get into this interior parts. They can't disrupt any kind of cell activity because there isn't any. What astounds me is that from that round body inactive form without a cell wall, they can regrow every part of them. That to me is, you know, just biologically amazing that they can put together, you know, from being amorphic blobs with no metabolism, you know, they can regrow their cell wall material. They can put it all back together again and go back to doing what they were doing. Again, not unique among bacteria. So, but the way, you know, the spirochetes really does it, if this long skinny, uh, you know, as far as bacteria are concerned, it's a really big bacteria, very complex structure, and it puts itself back together again. And I, you know, that it's a shout out to the bacteria. Not that I like them because I'm sort of mad at them, you know, making people sick and all, but um, they're pretty remarkable. So let's wrap this up in what's the future of testing? Where do labs need to go? Where does the research need to go? Is anybody doing it that can get a good test in these first 40 days, this first window before the Borrelia really becomes established within the body. Is is there any hope in a few years we've got something or is this still decades off? No, I don't think so. I think that this is really the time. Um, and one of the things, one of the very positive things that came out of the uh, Tick-Borne Disease Working Group report was you know, that the diagnostic state of diagnostic testing is is poor. And as a result, you know, what emerged from that was a greater interest in finding a test that was more accurate. And of course, from a commercial perspective, it's first to the market, right? Who can get there first and opportunity because the test is so bad. I mean, you know, whatever test comes forward is going to rapidly become very popular, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. So there are teams that are very interested in this and, you know, teams that are using technology cutting edge right up to the second technology. Um, and a lot of it has to do with computing power. So, you know, what, what is going on is measurement of all these patients, starting with, you know, the EM rash population and also moving into the post-treatment population um, to try to find out what the different biomarkers are. All right. So just measure everything. Right. And we can do that now. We have the technology, mass spectroscopy and others that you can measure all of these different parameters. And now we have the computing power where you can put all of that data into a computer program that will parse it all and say, OK, so this was elevated. That was decreased. This is that. This is this. Looking at proteins, looking at RNAs, looking at the DNA, um, you know, all different levels of biology, if you will. And we now have the computing power to put that all together. So I know that Microsoft partnered with a group um, in Seattle. They're doing work up there. Um, you know, Johns Hopkins has, John Alcott's lab has probably the best bio repository of well-characterized Lyme disease patients there is. And he's been 
collaborating with lots of people to try to find common denominators among them all. And they've been publishing a lot. So my point being, I don't think it's that far off at all. You know, work, uh, the Arizona State University has a team that's working on this as we speak. So I, you know, I, I don't, I, I've been saying this, it's like, it's got to happen. But now there's really people who are interested in it. And I think that comes with the fact, the realization that even, you know, NIH has published a strategic plan and the strategic plan says, this is something that we really need to look at. So NIH is saying that out loud. They haven't shown anybody any money to do that yet. But NIH has said, this is a priority, which means when the U.S. government says this is a priority, that means the FDA says this is a priority. So when the, you know, we'll, we'll prioritize it when it comes down the pipe. And, you know, so I, I really believe within a year to two years, there's going to be stuff out there that will be accurate, that will be able to discriminate who has and who has not, you know, early infection, who would be the best candidates for antibiotics. Um, so, you know, without trying to make anybody think, you know, this is, I do believe that within, I'd say two years, there'll be something available for sure that will, will help with this. So that means in the next year, there should be clinical trials happening, right? There, I'm, I can tell you there are, are sample trials going on now. Excellent. Right now. Excellent. Yeah. So. Well, that's, that's very helpful. And then we just, do, do you think it's a matter of we have to cross our fingers and hope that this, uh, these technologies actually work? Or do you think this is a type of thing where the technology is robust enough that uh, it, it's just a matter of crossing T's and dotting I's? I think the technology is, I mean, at this stage of the game in science, there's enough technology there that this could be, this will work. What we need to be sure that we keep track of is, you know, what we don't need is another test that doesn't work. So you're hearing all of this stuff coming from various labs saying, oh, you know, we've improved serology. We're multiplexing serology, meaning we're increasing the number of antibodies we're looking for, which will increase our likelihood of getting a positive result. That completely negates the problem of the fact that the immune system isn't doing anything normally, and that it's not the same across the board. I think we need to move away from serology regardless of using multiplex, using better detection system, we need to move away from that. And move to um, urine? Because of the no, genes? I'm talking about blood serology um, is measuring antibodies okay. in blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people are not producing the same antibodies, and some don't produce them at all. Well, so the like, test is that's the whole failed population. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole thing that happened with the, the cancer. We're going to uh, genetically look at all these cancers, and we're going to find the common genes, and then we'll be in great shape. And what they found was the same thing. It was heterogeneic. It's like just all over the place. There's no pattern, except, you know, in a, in right. a few uh, small cases there. And they're just left scratching their head more. So, yeah, right. I, I hear, hear what you're saying there. So, you know, got to go after the bug's own proteins, right? Yep, or DNA or RNA, yeah. um, pro something before all that. Yeah. Yes, you, you, well, DNA and RNA are not technically not proteins, but close enough. It's still something detectable. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, I've just stepped off of my the edge of my knowledge there. In my mind, they're the same thing. Yeah, they're proteins. We can detect them. <laughs> so right. here's exactly. and here's my final question to you. So this we finally get a good test. It comes out. 
and it becomes widely disseminated, widely used. It's inexpensive. So the, the insurance companies are happy to pick it up. You know, we're living in a perfect world. How many people out there have Lyme disease now? Well, because it becomes chronic and we don't actually know uh, the proportion, but I would say the number of new cases that end up going chronic is probably 30 to 40 percent, maybe a little bit higher. There are, you know, if you consider, for example, in 2017, there are 427,000 new cases of Lyme, right? So let's just let's go back and just use that number. Let's use 20 percent because 10 to 20 percent of people are acknowledged, of those new cases are acknowledged to go on to have post-treatment Lyme. Let's just use that number, 20%. So 20% of 400,000 is 80,000 people that will develop chronic debilitating illness as a result. And after five years, that's almost half a million people. After 10 years, that's, you know, another two, you know, another bunch of millions of people. So the point being, that's from one year, from 2017. So the number of cases are not going down, regardless of what it looks like when you, you know, the CDC announcements, it looks like they're going down. The Massachusetts went to zero, right? (laughs) Went to zero. And uh, by the way, New York State also, because the CDC will not accept cases unless they meet their case definition. New York State is not surveilling using that case definition. So they're not accepting New York State cases either. So, and by the way, that applies to many other states. So then, you know, you look at the numbers of like, oh, they're going down. No, they're not. It's, they're doubling down on their reporting system, which, so, and when you look at raw case data, which I guess is why the CDC says, you know, just multiply those numbers by 10, because we're probably missing one in 10. Um, you know, the numbers are going up because the numbers of ticks are going up. We have done nothing to increase prevention at this stage of the game. So, you know, it's not going away. It's not going down. So if I, if you want me to estimate how many people have Lyme disease, like the broad spectrum of what Lyme disease could be, right? The EM rash version, the chronic or any of that. I, there are millions of people in the U.S. and across the world that have this disease that has not yet been diagnosed. The long-term complications are not even being considered. This is a, a major cause of chronic illness in this country. And hopefully that will emerge from all this too. That is my hope. Holly, you've been extremely generous with your time. Thank you so much. And we'll, where, where should people go? Cause you're not really a clearinghouse for information. You can't, can't really put your phone number up there, but you are involved with some organizations that are just outstanding. So where should people go to learn more about Lyme? Uh, so uh, my organization is Lyme Action Network. Um, so we do have uh, information available and we also have links to other larger national organizations. I would say LymeDisease.org is an excellent clearinghouse for uh, patient information. In fact, they have a, a patient registry. If anybody is interested in participating in that patient registry, they can go register and all of their data is being captured for big data purposes to look for trends, to look for, you know, so this is actual patient data, not, you know, public health data, not case surveillance data, not um, anecdotal medical studies done on 100 people. This is a patient registry with 10,000 people in it so far. So I urge everybody to go share their information with that registry so there's more data available on the patient uh, perspective of the disease. And then, you know, the other um, Bay Area Lyme Foundation is funding research 
Global Lyme Alliance is funding research. The Cohen Foundation is funding research. Um, so there's information available at all those locations as well. So, you know, if, if there's a lot of good information out there, most of it being, uh, you know, juried by patient foundations that, that are being powered by patients. And I think that's important because at the moment, medicine hasn't quite caught up with what we know about the disease. So, Thanks to people like you, at least they're in the race now. <laughs> I hope so. I hope we're in the race. We got a fast horse. We're, we're getting there. And that was our interview with Dr. Holly Ahern. You know, it's always encouraging to hear from someone who is in the thick of it in terms of research and advocacy like Dr. Ahern be as optimistic as she is. So do you have feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything? Send an email to feedback at limeninjaradio.com. If you're still listening, you're either a glutton for punishment or you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. If you really like what we're doing, do us a favor, scroll to the bottom of your podcast app and leave us a review. And if you really, really like what we're doing, consider sponsoring Lime Ninja Radio for as little as $1 a month. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and click on the sponsor link. And last, as you longtime ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with a Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know a ninja once went for an evening jog and accidentally won the Ironman Triathlon? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.